Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Halid Soup, who is a software crafter, crafting software coach at Zeneca Montreal based in Canada. Halid Souf, we're so glad to have you on Maintainable. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, uh, Robbie, for this session. So I want to dig into a few topics with you. And before we get too far into some of those other more questions about your background, I do want to talk a little bit about maintainable software just at a high level. What do you believe are a few common characteristics or traits of well-maintained code? Well, uh, actually, when you check the word uh, maintainable, you're going to find that it's something that you maintain. So it's something that you can evolve, uh, something that you can fix if, if there is a problem with that. So usually uh, when I'm thinking about maintainable, uh, I'm always saying that uh, it's going to be easy to modify that, to modify the behavior that have the code, to, to, to improve that behavior and maybe to fix things. It's going to be really easy. And when I'm saying easy, I mean it will not take so much time and it will not take also so much effort to think about it. Often there's concerns about developers maybe pre-optimizing. It's like, where's that, trying to find that balance there of like uh, making it easier to change in the future, like where where do you find is a good cutoff point of being like, well, this is enough for now versus what we may need a year or two down the road when we're evolving these things? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's a good question because if you see how the industry, uh, in the history of the industry, how it works, at some point we started by doing them some some designing, some architecture, some stuff, and then and then we try to, to, to implement it. Usually... Uh, when you go back to the industry, maybe before the 80s and all the stuff, and even before that, uh, the people, they, they tend to, to what we do uh, over engineering because they are thinking about a lot of stuff that maybe it can happen or not. But I think the best way to do it is, let's say, do only what we can work right now and try to, to do just enough design and architecture to make it work. So, like you said, there, there is something that uh, at some point you need to compromise. If you know that in the future, and when I say future, it's like uh, uh, after a month, after, after maybe uh, several weeks, you know that something's going to happen, so you prepare for that. So you prepare your design, your architecture, your, uh, your things, how it's going to work uh, in that way. But if, if it is something in a year, you don't do that. <laughs> because if you do that... You are not sure that it's going to be used, and maybe you're going to implement something that's going to be uh, almost over-engineered. Uh, and sometimes, and even I've seen that in some project, they 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 got so much dead code that, and the reason about the dead code, there are, there are two reasons actually. You have a feature that that is uh, let's see, let's say uh, obsolete or uh, deprecated, and the other stuff is we implemented that because we know that we're going to need it in six months, but. After six months, the market already changed and we don't need that anymore. So these are the cases that we have, uh, these kind of dead code. Interesting. And, you know, when you think about dead code and identifying, so you have features that aren't used. And do you think that's often an issue where the product owners didn't really think through it enough or they didn't promote that set of functionality or feature to whoever the audience or user base is? Do you think there's a 
the responsibility of a developer to try to determine to detect that information? Like whose roles does that kind of typically fall under you see? Yeah, so uh, if you are talking, if you understand well what your, your question, uh, and if we are talking about about how, how we manage feature, I'm going to say is uh, usually the product owner also is like, uh, is like some kind of developer. Why? Because they try to experiment some few things and then see if the market, how it's going to get the feedback from the market. What, what I think is mostly uh, a product owner has some kind of vision, but he doesn't have a plan. And every time he changed the plan, uh, depending on what he gets as a feedback. And it's the same also for us. When you are try to implement something and you got a design or architecture, all the stuff, you try some stuff, but you're not sure that that is the best way to do it because you don't know. And even if you know, maybe you've known that in some kind of context, not with the tools that you have right now, not with the, with the context that you have right now. And I'm not talking about context. I'm usually speaking about uh, the feature itself, uh, the customer. Uh, let's say also when I'm talking about the customer, so the user also. So these kind of change always. That's why usually when I when I starting doing stuff, I go back to zero and try to to reevaluate all the tools that I've been using for 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 maybe a month, all the stuff because I know that the 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 industry is really evolving too fast. So you need to. At some point, when, when you get to the point when you try to start something new, there you need, you need to go back and say, hey, okay, so I don't know anything. I go back. I try to see what they, they made right now in the industry, what's the best way to do it. Let, let's say what is good practice right now, even in clean code and all the stuff, tomorrow maybe it's going to be something that we shouldn't do it. And it can be uh, elsewhere because one of the cases that I remember well at some point, I remember that the best practice is using some, uh, when you are uh, defining a method or uh, let's say a function or the stuff, you need to put uh, as less uh, parameters as possible. But right now, that thing is obsolete. Why? Because you have the, your IDE, like IntelliJ, like, uh, uh, like Visual Code, uh, VS Code, all the stuff, they, they already manage that. So when you try to to create that kind of function, you, you don't care anymore about that because the IDE will help you to do it. Right. So you remember all the different options and things you can, could be passing to, you know, your function or method and stuff like that. You know, you mentioned uh, also, you know, thinking back on that, the, the topic around product owners, managers around, you know, having sets of features that were built and maybe the market's not using it or whatever. Do you th- do you think there's an interesting hesitation for teams to remove things that might be perceived as a value add from like a sales perspective? Like we can check that box off that we have this functionality, but, but the developers know like nobody's using it. So it's dead code. Should we get rid of this or not? But sometimes that could be part of the, uh, the overall. That's really a good question because right now when I've seen in the industry that usually uh, when we implement something, we never remove it. And that's, that's really a big issue. Uh, I think I've read some, uh, I don't know what is the company, I don't remember right now. They, they, are, they have, they, they implemented uh, so much things at some point because the, the market is evolving. So they keep it these things, but it's like, uh, like we said before, it's a dead code. So at some point you need to remove it. And that habit or maybe that thing that everybody should at some point delete code, I didn't see it often uh, happening in the, in the industry. Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often? 
uh, I try to not use it uh, very often. Why? Because uh, this word is really uh, misused. Uh, it's used a lot. I think many people use it to, to, to define everything. Everything that is, that is bad, they, they say that's technical debt, but it is not technical debt. The technical debt is, if you go to the definition, is something like, uh, uh, let's say you have, you have a code, you need to maintain it. When I say maintain it, you need to evolve it or fix the bug. At some point, it's going to be too expensive to, to maintain it. Why? Because you have a technical debt in that. And what is a technical debt? You've done something, maybe not well designed, maybe there is something missing about that. And at some point, it becomes so much, uh, let's say, complex that when you try to, to evolve it, when you try to fix something on, on that, it's going to take you so much time. And that time that you, that you take, the, 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 let's say, the, the delta time between if it is good and if it is, let's say, uh, a complex, that delta time, that's, that's the, the, the technical that, that you need to pay every time you do it. And thanks for kind of providing your background or at least your, uh, your kind of working definition or understanding of that term. And you, and you also alluded to that people misuse it a lot. What are, where is the difference between like bad code or just code you disagree with or maybe code you don't understand? And then is that, could you also argue that tech code that you don't understand when you're reading it or looking at that is a form of technical debt or is it just when people use it in more of like a, they have a different, like I would have done it differently. Like I said, if you, uh, if you are speaking about a good or a bad, a bad code, I, I don't like the term good or bad, uh, or bad code. I prefer the term maintainable code and let's say complex maintainable code. <laughs> so easy maintainable code, complex uh, maintainable code. So Usually, I always put that so, so it can be uh, more prog- uh, pragmatic about that. Because like, like you know, when you, when you do some, uh, you can hurt somebody's feeling when you, when you say it that way, when you say it's good or it's bad. So uh, let's say uh, when, when, I, when I think about the code, um, the code actually is something that uh, you need to maintain. So it's something you do, let's say, every day, Every step of day, uh, you need to, to to create some routine to do it, and you need to to make it to make that routine, uh, let's say, a part of your process of uh, of development. That's that's the thing that you need uh, you need to be. So if you go back also, uh, if you go back to the definition, uh, in my case, a maintainable an easy maintainable code is something that we read uh, when you try to read. You will not take much time to to understand what what it does. Uh, and also, uh, it's something already uh, tested, so it's robust. So it's something that that is really uh, working, and you know that 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 is working. One of the the thing that I do usually, because uh, I think you've already read my resume, so I'm doing a lot of stuff. One of them is sometimes they call me only to to do a redesigning or a refactoring of of an application, and for uh, like a month or something like that. Only call me for that. And how do I, uh, let's say, measure that if the code is complex or easy is how much time do I need to understand how it works? If it takes too, too much time, I can say, no, this is not good. There is something missing right here. So we need to go back to that. Um, going back to, to, to the notion of maintainable, what I think about the industry is we always compromise about the bad things. So the best way, I think, in my opinion, to compromise is 
always testing something. Even, even, if, even if the design or the architecture is not well designed, that's fine because when it is tested, you can go back at some point and redesign it or maybe refactor it. And you are sure that you're going to do that very well because you already have your, uh, your security, what is the test, actually. But if you do a good uh, readable code, but not tested, at some point, when you go back there, you, you're going to have what we call the fear of the code. So you're going to fear to modify that code because you don't have any security on it. And just to clarify on testing, are you primarily referring to, say, automated tests type of suite, or do you think any form of consistent QA testing of the? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking only about uh, about testing automated tests mainly. And uh, when you are talking about automated tests, it can be also in both sides. It can be uh, on the developer side, and it can be in the QA side. But I, pre I prefer like everyone. Uh, uh, in the developer side, why? Because you have, uh, let's say, f uh, a faster feedback loop when you modify or when when you update that code. And I'm I'm going to want to come back and touch on testing a little bit more with you as well. But I'm curious about you know just so the audience can get to know a little bit more about you um, in your background. So, at what point in your career as a software engineer did you realize that you wanted to start coaching other developers on improving their code and workflows and things like that? I think it was like uh, maybe four years ago, something like that. But before that, if I go back uh, in my career, is like uh, when I was like, uh, I have like uh, four years of experience or something like that. So it's going to be like uh, almost eight or nine years ago. Uh, I start thinking that maybe uh, there is somebody who already thinks about how we should uh, work as a developer. So what are the steps? There is maybe some approach. And that's where I discovered uh, crafting software, TDD, extreme programming, and all the stuff. And from there, um, I started using them, uh, let's say, in all uh, the work that I have. But let me be clear, to, to do that, at some point, you need some mentors. You need a community, especially community for that. Uh, you can do it alone. If you go, if you do it alone, that that's okay too. But uh, you will miss many things because I think you learn more from the other than 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 yourself alone. It's usually the case. So that's why I'm I was always active in Paris at at that point in the in the crafting software community. And when I got to 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 Montreal, I already uh, included myself in that. And I think you met already my uh, my friend uh, Nicola Carlo. Uh, actually, we are co-organizing co the, 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 the software crafters there in, in Montreal. So. Awesome. So did you have some coaches or mentors that you work with that were that helped you in a professional capacity where like you were working somewhere or and you brought in coaches of, in that type of thing or consultants to come in or... Yeah, let's say uh, if I'm talking about that is uh, we were not in the same staff, so they, they're working on some other stuff. But usually when you do that, you need what, what, I, call, uh, what I call some, some partner in crime, you see, to, to experiment things, to do things. And usually it's going to be one person. And that person, you're going you're gonna to work together in many, uh, in many things. You're going to discuss about that. So my partner in crime, it was, uh, I, I think he, 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 he's... He's becoming right well known in the industry. He is called uh, Xavier Deton. 
uh, is French. And we've been working for uh, maybe five or seven years uh, together. And we always, when you do that stuff, we always do it together. We try to experiment things. We go back and we go back to the community to try if uh, and to try to get feedback from people all the stuff. So uh, th there is two types of things. If you are lucky enough, you're gonna get uh, mentors. And if you are not lucky, like myself, because I didn't get uh, get mentors because the the mentors they were like uh, the, the, there wasn't too much mentor. So I've become a mentor myself after several several years and then at some point uh, it changed completely how uh, my way of of work because right now I'm always switching between the roles of uh, a senior developer to uh, a crafting software coach to yeah to, and always I try always to switching between the two roles why because I don't want to become that uh, crafting software coach who is like like a an ivory tower or something like that. I need at some point to go back. And also I need some time to, to experiment a few things. And that's what I do usually in the community. Nice. Yeah, I'm always curious about how people's different journeys to getting into that world. And I think it's, you know, you, you touched on the point of that it's important for you to know that you still spend time in code um, to live and breathe in that world and experiment. And so that way you're not feeling like you're disconnected when you go to tell other or help coach other people on how to do things. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting balance there. It's even like it just says people evolve in their career where they might move into more of like a tech lead role or something. And they don't feel like they're getting to spend as much time coding as they used to because they're navigating the other complexities. And I think a, a way that I've heard that phrase by a few people is like, you become like a multiplier in that you're helping enable other people to, to, to do a bunch of work versus just what you can individually as a solo or just a individual contributor can produce within, within the context of a software project. Do you have any advice for those listening that are kind of curious, like they're maybe junior mid-level people in their, in their career at this point, but they're thinking like, what's my career trajectory look, looking like? Do you have some, some suggestions on like, if they were curious to learn about Maybe at some point, I would like to find myself being a good mentor or a coach or training people on how to do things. What's some, what are some steps that they can kind of take to maybe start dipping their toes into that to see if it's maybe a good fit for them long term? But Yeah, so uh, let's say if, if I'm going to talk about that, I'm going to talk uh, mostly about my journey. It can be different from, from, uh, from persons like, like you said. I think the best way to, to start with is to, uh, to get to the community, to the local community. If a community doesn't exist, create one. <laughs> so that's, that's the stuff. Because I know always, every time I go from a community to another, even in places that uh, there is always what, what I call people that, that I call hidden gems, you know. Say they didn't find maybe, uh, uh, let's say, uh, a community, but they're already working on that. So they read books. So they watch videos about uh, about all the, the known player uh, the known uh, mentors that, that are there but start with the community and from the community start working with somebody uh, who is uh, he gonna be like like your pair uh, in every pair programming uh, your uh, guy that uh, I said guy but I know in both gender I'm sorry about that uh, your let's say your partner in everything that you 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 want to experiment and all the stuff and try to find that person in work and even outside work also. That's that's what I usually and uh, there is so much material uh, books especially and uh, videos 
And you need to go there. So there is the books of Ken Peck, about uh, Uncle Bob, about uh, uh, Sandro Mancuso. There are so much material already in the internet. So, but don't do it alone, always. That's, that's the, the, the biggest advice that I give. Don't do it alone. Do it with somebody else because when you do it with somebody else, you're going to have some different perspective about that and you're going to learn a lot about how to do that in different way that your way. That, that's that's the, the biggest advice that I can give. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com slash referrals. Thanks. Thanks. I think thanks for kind of digging in and sharing more about your journey there. I'm curious now that we're in these pandemic times, the uh, the importance of local community, but also seemingly feeling like it's more difficult to do that in, in some areas of the world right now. And so, yeah, I think there's there's definitely a lot of materials and things to learn online. And I like that 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 angle of just don't don't do it alone. Find someone. And you said earlier, a partner in crime to kind of learn and bounce ideas off of and, and grow together, I suppose. What do you what do you believe are important things to keep in mind? You know, when you are I'm, I'm assuming as a coach and, and consultant, you are diving into other people's code bases on a regular basis. And, and so you're a guest and someone else is like, you're not going to be there forever, probably on this project. You're coming in for a period of time. You have a contract or whatever the arrangement is, you come in. What do you, what are some things that you think is important for developers to keep in mind when they're taking those first steps into looking at someone other's code base and also both on a technical and say social level with the existing team? Yeah, so uh, I think the first step, uh, what I usually do is try to to tell people that I'm not here there to say that they they're doing, uh, let's say, a bad job. <laughs> so that's why I, I try not to use the, the term bad or good or something like that. And also, uh, in the first days, I will try to pair program with the with the with what we call uh, the dungeon master. The dungeon master usually is a senior developer, or maybe the the older developer in uh, in that application, and he know every stuff about that. So I try to peer program with him to understand why he is doing that that way. Maybe he doesn't know, and sometimes because uh, also they, they got some pressure. Uh, let's say they, they are pressured from the management and all the stuff. So. The solution that I give when, I, when I'm uh, refactoring or redesigning is going to be uh, a short-term solution. But you need also to think about the long-term solution. And like you said before, the, the, the thing is not mostly about the code. It can be something that about the, the organization not working well. So, so that's why I know that, that, that I need to do that short-term stuff. So I do it. I try to diffuse as much as possible knowledge. And when, I, uh, when I'm doing that, I always try to do it in a way that 
It's going to be helpful for the developers that I'm working with. And also in a way that I'm not the teacher. They are not the student. We'll try to work in this together. That's, that's how, how I introduce myself. So I'm, I'm always, when somebody asking me what you are doing, I never say that I'm training developer or, the, or something like that. I say, hey, I'm just here to, to try to help. So it's always that kind of mindset that you need to keep when you are working that way. And like I said, um, on a social level, if you read the books about, uh, about crafting software, about the attitude and all the stuff, you never play the game alone. So you need to play with others. So we need to understand the others. And you need also to, to improve others, the others when you are there. And usually, if I've done my, my work well, I'm always try to get that people, uh, these people to the community too. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how, how I usually do it. That's interesting. Uh, bring them into, invite them into your world and, and that can help foster that. Do you, you know, in those types of engagements, are you feeling like, and I've heard different people answer this in different ways and just in terms of like, it's like some people want to go into an environment and it's like, is as a consultant and, or a coach or whatever the capacity. And in some ways you're trying to help that team help themselves in a lot of ways. And so trying to be mindful to say, maybe not end that project or engagement feeling like with the stakeholders or whoever feeling like, wow, we couldn't have done it without that person. But like, what has the team been able to accomplish since that person's been part of it? And then it's like the, is it effective consultant the someone that can kind of help elevate the team and kind of be in a weird, maybe in an odd way, not be seen as the hero. You know, they're it's the team is now that you know is is the hero at this point because they've been able to they've been able to step up and deliver because that's what the organization needs long term, right? So uh, I hate that uh, that let, let's call it the anti patterns of of hero. So uh, I found it a lot in many teams. So what I try to do is creating some space. The knowledge can be shared between all of them, uh, creating also some space that they can work together in the code. Because usually what I found, uh, usually, uh, let's say, a non-maintainable code or a bad maintainable code is done because everybody is working on the code alone without any feedback from the others. I try always to, to, to create, like I say, when, I, when I'm talking about space, I'm talking about time, about maybe uh, something that's going to be done regularly, like a mob session programming every week, uh, pair programming when they can. And I try to push this practice. And then from there, uh, I go, uh, when, when I see that everybody is open and everybody try, he, he, they, they are less, let's say, in the defensive way, because usually when you are trying to, to, to touch the code of the others, they don't like it. <laughs> so when they, 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 they starting to trust me, that, that's the thing, they're starting to trust me, then I go and say, okay, so now we're going to uh, start and see the technique that we can learn. And we do it in the more programming session and also pairing with them. And the, the thing that I'm always doing is I'm trying to pair program with them in their project so they know that I know my stuff and I'm not talking about something theoretical or something like that. Because that, that's also, the, the let's say, the thing that 
the people they are thinking about. If, if you start talking about TDD, about uh, techniques, all the stuff, they say, hey, yes, but that's not the real world. So usually I say, okay, let's do it in the real world. So let's go. <laughs> you know, you, you, have to, you learn these types of, uh, say, best practices over a period of time. I'm assuming you didn't just, you know, wake up one day and be like, oh, I know exactly how to navigate being a really good coach or consultant coming in. So do you recall any mistakes you made early on that you're like, no, nah, I wouldn't, wouldn't, do, wouldn't do that again? Yeah, sure, a lot. <laughs> you know, I've done a lot of mistakes in, in my career, but that's uh, that's okay too, because every time I do that and try to do uh, some retrospective about that and how I can improve myself so I can do it better. And I will still uh, making uh, mistakes even right now. So <laughs> that's okay. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes I've been making, I think it was the first uh, mission that I've been doing uh, coaching. I was like... Uh, talking to people directly to say, hey, this is good, this is bad, uh, we shouldn't do that, the, the best technique that way, the think about the, that way. And also when I recall about that, I was always in that uh, thing that uh, I was thinking that there is only one way to do, to do it, but it's never the case. It's always that they have so many ways to do it better. So I tried to, uh, I, I started to shift from Somebody who is here for the code to somebody who is here for the developers. And then the code is going to uh, go uh, after that. Because the main problem is the organization, uh, maybe the team, how, how the team is, is working. So if you manage to solve that issue, you manage to improve the code in, in the long term. I think that's really important. Do you, uh, you know, we, I want to, as I mentioned earlier, I want to circle back on testing a bit. And so... I'm, is it safe to assume you sometimes join projects where there's maybe a lack of any tests or just no tests whatsoever at that point? And like, how do you help a team? It is a common problem that I've, I've, I've seen with working with different teams is that like there might have been maybe someone along the way that had maybe started doing this, writing some automated tests when they kind of abandoned it for whatever reason. And the other people didn't really know what to do and pick it up because they had some problems with it. And now they've, you know, they have this large application and they've never been to really figure out, well, where can we start? really producing some tests when there's so like a really healthy test fleet relies on a lot of a lot of doing it along the way sometimes and so how do you start implementing that as a process and where where do you get tactical in that sense of like okay let's start creating a test suite when one didn't exist yeah so uh mainly when when uh, when it's starting to uh, when the test uh, the test, actually, they get another definition is the first user of your code. So if it is hard to test, so your code is too complex. So the best indicator to know if a, if a code is maintainable or not is the test. That's, that's what I usually what I, what I do. Uh, and starting from there, I go, like you say, to, to, to them and try to get if there is existing tests, maybe banned, maybe, uh, let's say, uh, uh, deprecated, maybe something like that, and try to understand the reason why they didn't keep it. And usually, like you said, there's going to be somebody done that in uh, alone. At some point, the other, they didn't understand what he did. So at some point, we need to maintain these tests because we, we need to change the code. And at some point, they remove it. Uh, they remove it then. So the cause of the problem is not the test itself. It is because somebody done that did not communicate to the others 
or maybe we have different level of uh, of expertise in that and uh, because the the people they they tend to 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 not ask others because they fear that they're going to be judged and at some point they they remove that right do you you know as you're entering into these scenarios are there some common challenges that you find right away with getting set up in that environment and working on that new new to you code base that are or things that you look for and you're like I always feel like I have to make these first few contributions to you know, this or that, because it is often overlooked by a team because they don't have guests very often or no one's needed to be onboarded in a while. Um, yeah, usually I try to get, uh, you know, when you are, you have the code, you have uh, different use cases implemented in that code. I try to pick the simplest one. I try to get an example with all the, let's say, the type of test that we need to do. And I do it in that one. And I make that focus on how testing to in a simple case. And then when we go to the complex case, I know that we already mastered that with the team. And when you go there, they, they are more confident because they know the test, they know the code, they know everything. So I try to not make many variables when, when we try to start something. Always, uh, let's say, uh, that's the thing that I usually do also uh, in TDD. When you are trying to learn maybe something new, like a new language or all the stuff, I try to figure out I have always three variables. Do I know the kata, the exercise? Do I know the technique? So it's going to be TDD. And do I know the language? If I know TDD and the exercise, for example, I'm going to give you an example like Harry Potter uh, kata. So I'm going uh, I'm gonna to change the language and try to learn the language. If I don't know, if I know uh, the language, and I know the kata, and I uh, and I don't know TDD, so so that's the thing is to learn TDD. So usually always focus on one thing, don't focus on on many. So if you start, for example, uh, uh, a project that you need to maintain, take the simplest example, try to put the a test on it, try to create your uh, strategy of test, and then from there you're gonna propagate it to 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 the complex one, to the complex code, because you already have configured your tests, a lot of the stuff, so you need to add them. I wanted to quickly circle back. You just mentioned the Harry Potter kata, and I'm not familiar with that. And That's the thing that, that I learned from the community, actually. You never find that in, the, in a book. Maybe the one book that was talking about is the book of uh, Emily Bash. Uh, that is, I think, uh, Coding Dojo. So the term actually started in France. So it's uh, usually what is a Coding Dojo is you take some kind of small exercise, small, let's say, specification or a problem. And from there, you're going to practice something. You're going to practice maybe a technique, maybe a language. And that's what, uh, that's what actually a coding dojo. So from a coding dojo, you have many types. You have the kata. The kata is, uh, is something that somebody going to do something and everybody do the same uh, thing. So I'm going to write the test. Everybody write the test. It, it, it's coming from uh, from the martial arts, so so that's why we are using the same term uh, as them. And uh, usually, when I start to 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 do that, when I'm talking about TDD, we start with these small exercises to to get a bit of, let's say, technical, uh, practical, and theoretical thing, but in in a small uh, in a in a small case. And and that's really uh, interesting because these kind of exercise they don't take more than an hour or two hours. So it's, it's just a small enough to know something, 
and to practice something. So that's why I'm usually uh, using them. And then from there, like I said, I move to, to the real world, so to the real code, and we, we start to practice that uh, in the real world. So if I'm talking about kata, usually you get many types of them. You get one for TDD, you get many for TDD, you get many for refactoring all the stuff. And the best repository that you're going to find about them uh, is the repository actually of Emily Bash. So it's, it's well known. So she, she gets almost every kata there. <laughs> We'll be back with our interview with Halid in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Halid Souf. Earlier on, you had touched on you know when it came to maintainable code being, you know, being easy to make changes to, and how how do how do you de- determine where that what is what e- is easy or not without it being feeling too subjective? Is there is it just the, the fact that you're needing to spend a lot of time on making the change? And you mentioned you did touch on time quite a bit, or is it is there some other ways you, you're kind of looking at that? Yeah, so uh, there are, I think, a few techniques that, uh, that, you, that I learned actually from the book of uh, Michael Feathers, uh, working very effectively with legacy code, like, uh, like Sprout method, Sprout class, and all the stuff. Uh, the best technique that I use when I'm starting a project is what we call scratch refactoring. So what is really amazing about uh, Git, actually, that you can do what we call uh, a checkout of, of the SHA-1, and you go what we call in experimental way. Because I know I'm going to throw that after, after I did it. So to understand how the code is working, I run it. I try to, to move some stuff to understand how it works. And at some point, I go back because I already understand how, how, how it's working. So, so I, never, I never start with a test, actually, when I'm doing that. Be- why? Because I know that everything that I'm doing is only in experimental way. And I'm going back to... to to the code after that. And then I start doing tests. Do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor? That's an interesting question. <laughs> Usually I'm always in the, in the team uh, redesigning, not the team refactoring, because let's say I did have the case actually when I'm pair program with, uh, with other people, but when I'm going to, to like I say, to, to the contract of one month, I need to, to refactor. Actually, it's not one month to refactor. It's one month to redesign. But when I'm coaching people, mostly it's going to be refactoring. It will not be uh, redesigning. Usually, uh, I do with them the refactoring, and then I ask them to, if, if, they, if they'd like to, to, go, to go further, they can, they can redesign. Just so I understand, is redesign? Is there? Do you see a fundamental difference between like a, a full rewrite versus a redesign? Yes, yes, you're right. Uh, yeah, I didn't talk about that. <laughs> so uh, a full rewrite is gonna be uh, we remove everything and we go uh, from the start. But our start point is we understand the business and we go there. Let's say uh, a redesign is we get an existing code and 
we understand mostly what, what it's going to do. So in every part that we do, uh, we're going to, uh, let's say we get the test, we remove that code and we start implementing that code with the design that we have in mind. That's my own definition, but I'm not sure it's the good one or, or not. And that, that's helpful to get that distinction there. I'm always curious about, you know, uh, usually, I think most of the guests, given that we talk about maintainable code, rewrites are not often the, the, the thing that people respond with. Like, oh, yeah, I'm always more on the idea of like wanting to rewrite something because I think a lot of people know that rewrites are oftentimes horrible experiences or, they, or they're not very successful at times. And have you had effective or successful rewrites? And what do you, do you feel like there was some, some, re, some prerequisites to make that successful or... Uh, like you said, 99%, it will not going to work if you are rewriting. But, uh, but I think I have some successful uh, experience about that. And it was successful because, uh, because actually we reworked on the business side also. Because we know that something uh, is obsolete and all the stuff. So when you do the rewriting, you need uh, to... to to go in production as fast as possible. That's the thing that you need to do. Uh, you will not keep them diverged uh, many, uh, let, let's say, for, for a long time. Because if you do that, at some point, what you have rewritten, you're going to throw it to the trash. Usually that, that's the case if you... It's like, it's like uh, uh, if, if I try to, to get, uh, let's say, to, to try to have uh, some example, or maybe not some example, but something similar is like having... Uh, uh, a long-term branching it. You shouldn't do, do that. It becomes really difficult to merge that later or to migrate or yeah. <laughs> a lot of projects or you end up a scenario where you're working on a new thing and then you also have to be responsible for taking care of the old thing, which is still the current thing. And so there's, a, there's an interesting uh, balance there. Yeah, the, the, the other thing also I remember is uh, sometimes when you do that, uh, mostly I've heard... Uh, Let's say uh, when I've done that, I've heard some managers saying, hey, we need to, to throw that. But in the same time, they're maintaining it. So it's kind of, uh, they don't know what they, what they need, actually. They are trying to evolve the old one, but they know that they need to go to the new one. So, <laughs> as, a, as someone that works with a lot of different developers and different, as a consultant and coach, do you... You ever find yourself in scenarios where there's someone on your t you're talking to and they're they they feel like you're you're helping highlight some concerns that they've had for a while and they've they said well I feel like we've tried to I've tried to help advocate for like we need to really upgrade this or we need to take care of like improving our test suite or you know improve some aspect of application but stakeholders saying not right now maybe a few many times and so they start to hear it translate that as like we're never going to do it or someday maybe is never happening um but the, and so they've stopped asking or bringing it up what advice would you offer them on how to get over that and maybe to start bringing those conversations up with stakeholders to hopefully get the buy in to start addressing those concerns that's uh, that's actually the uh, the the complex part of uh, when you when you are uh, coaching because uh, it's not always to to, to convince the developer is going to be always convinced the, the stakeholder. So usually, uh, I give them some statics and try to explain to them that uh, actually they get what we call uh, the feedback loop. And I say, hey, so 
you know that that feature is going to take six months. So if you work on that, it's going to take less time. I don't know how. I will not tell you a number, but I know that if we rework on that, after that, the work is going to be faster and you're going to have more feature about that. But you need to know that usually, usually what I negotiate is the time to do, let's say, the refactoring and the writing. I'll also, for the long term, I try to get like 10% or 20% to the, uh, of the time to the team, even after I'm gone. Usually I told them that, you know, that it's taking six months, but before it was taking one month. Why? Because we didn't manage to, to do that. And also, when you do that, you know, we should know also that sometimes the problem not also not always in the side of stakeholders. Sometimes it's uh, the developer side because they try to do things better. So they try to get faster, but uh, they will not put the test. They will not put the things. So the developer also at some point when they try to estimate, even I don't like the word estimate, but usually that's the case. When you try to estimate things, they need to put in consideration that when you are estimating developing something that you need to to also include in that the time that you are doing that with all the tests that you need to be done. I think that's always an interesting thing when people talk about like, well, I don't have enough time for tests and then try not to be overly rhetorical, but just uh, how do you know it worked? How do you know your code works? Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing, and also uh, when when you are saying uh, coding, it includes testing. So that's why even uh, even the stakeholder, the manager, or the they shouldn't even know that, that there are tests they are existing. They are for the developers. So the developers they need to include that in their work, and also uh, because when you say hey, uh, when 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 a manager or maybe a stakeholder they're gonna ask you why uh, it takes so much time, you're gonna say hey because I'm testing it. That's not a good reason. You shouldn't say that. You say it's too complex or something like that because the test includes some hidden uh, reason and you need to give that hidden reason. He shouldn't know how you work because it's not also, he shouldn't know the details. You're going to give him something. Gonna t- it takes so much time because we have something that we do or we get that, that issue or the stuff. But the issue is, is never the test. It's like that the uh, conversation around with teams being how do you define what done is and that needs to be more of the developer's responsibility to determine that not the the stakeholders exactly, exactly. That, that's what i usually doing when i start with the team i always ask them okay we're gonna define what you call the definition of ready so we know that when you get something you understand it well you have every element to to develop and the definition of done. So what is done for you is going to be tested, it's going to be deployed, it's going to be, I don't know, maybe merged and all the stuff. And it depends on the team because it's always different from a team to another because of the context of all the stuff. But there is something that I always add as a coach is testing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's important. All right, well, just a quick couple of quick last questions for you. Um, this one, you know, one I like to, to get to know people a little bit more maybe. Uh, what non-software development-related book do you find yourself often recommending to people in the industry? Non-software development. Okay. Um, I think it's called uh, Designing System. I started reading it uh, right now, the first page. (laughs) I started today doing it because uh, I was reading another book. But 
why did I buy that book? Because in one of the podcasts, I think I, uh, I heard Ken Beck uh, speaking about that. It's going to be really interesting, especially when you are doing coaching, because you're going to uh, think about it as systems, not only uh, individuals. Well, great. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, usually I'm very uh, active in Twitter. <laughs> so I got uh, the whole community there, but uh, also on LinkedIn, uh, I have my website. Uh, actually started writing some few uh, blog posts, uh, but le let me be clear about that. I'm really a lazy person to do that. <laughs> I'm always focusing on doing stuff, on honing my skills, and less on, uh, on sharing, but I starting sharing more and more right now. And, uh, and, uh, and I hope it's going to help, uh, help people. Well, excellent. Well, I mean, that's, uh, and joining us today on Maintainable is part of that journey for you as well. So and thanks for sharing. Uh, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Halid. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Ruby. Oh, 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 oh.